Is this recording? Excellent. All right, so kind of get us thinking tonight. Um, we are doing an overview of the Bible. So thank you, Regan, for kind of getting us, you know, cranked up tonight. If you were talking to somebody, not that this would come up in regular conversation. This is really weird because it's like, it's, <laughs> it's like I got to work on my peripheral vision. I wanted to make it hard on you. Oh, thanks. Um, if you were to talk, be in a conversation with somebody and somebody were to ask you, what is this book about? How would you answer that question? Jesus. <laughs> so... The way that I recently heard about it, sorry to just immediately take over the conversation. Go for it. Is that the Old Testament is God making promises of what he's going to do, and the New Testament is him fulfilling those promises. Okay. Thank you. That's it for tonight. I'm out. That's my contribution to the card. I'm going to go ahead and check that box. <laughs> All right. Other thoughts? Like if somebody were asking you, what is, what is this about? thousand years of, of God trying to come back and and save us and then finally sacrificing himself for our own benefit and we still screw up a bunch of Okay. Okay. Anything else? Okay. Have you guys ever heard of the Bible Project videos before? Well, I'm going to play this little, this is, a, this is a little overview. That might not be comfortable, but. I can see it. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Unless it's like an hour long. And then no, it's like six, five it's and a half minutes. Yeah, it's like five and a half minutes. I can see it. So. I need to work on my core strength anyway. <laughs> okay. Bible's an important book. It's but it's, yeah. It's, I'm going to sit over because I can't see. It's a long period of time, but altogether they tell one. So, what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity, or in Hebrew, Adam. And they're made as God's image. Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or... They could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge, and as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately, a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so, God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. 
we zoom into the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened. So even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends, and these promises are left hanging. And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. And that's confusing, but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil than even death itself. So now humanity is presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human, or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return. The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day, when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. Okay, so that's the story of the Bible. And it brings all of these books together. But what's interesting is that each book contains a different kind of literature that contributes to the story in a unique way. And that's what the next video will begin to explore. All right. So I'm going to sit over there because I can see people. Um, what? Um, okay. So. What did you maybe see in that video that you hadn't thought about before?
or maybe how was something said that made you think about the Bible in a different way? Or what did you think about the video? Smirk there, Carter. Yeah. Um, I've, I've heard the term Babylonian tossed around a lot relating to politics and how, like, it's it's a worldly thing and, and not the Christ-like thing. It's mm-hmm. materialistic instead of faithful thing to do yeah so. I also just don't know my Bible history very well so <laughs> remembering that they came out of Babylon yeah so. it's a pretty efficient way to talk about the story of the Bible I mean five and a half minutes it covers a lot of ground so all right, so we're going to get into this. Genesis 1. We're going there. We're going we're gonna to start at the beginning. Surprise, surprise. And I want to read um, the first 25 verses. Uh, and stuff you've probably heard before. But I want you guys to listen to it um, from the perspective of God being king. Because that's really the focus of the book of Genesis and the, the Bible, um, you saw in the video, you saw Adam and Eve with crowns on, which I don't know if you like caught that detail that they had crowns on. And there's going to, there's going to be a reason for that in a minute. Um, but there's a, there's a theme in the old Testament of God having this authority. And so um, I want you just to like think about, these verses and that from that perspective and and genesis uh, tradition says that the first five books of the bible were written by moses um probably more likely that moses was sort of like he collected all of these stories that these are stories that were that were passed down from gener you know from generation to generation and he kind of grabbed them all together and assembled this together um and and yes wrote it down but um, if that is the case, then this was written after Moses rescues the people from Egypt out of slavery. And so for 400 years leading up to this, like they've been slaves, they've been in a land where there's other gods. And so um, there's, a, there's a, a pretty strong, I think, theory that this was the first five books of the Bible written for them to remember, like, who are you? What are you about? And so... Kind of with that in mind, I'm going to read through the first uh, 25 verses of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness was he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so, and he called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. 
And God said, let the, let, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land and the bear fruit that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing and seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in their, according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And it was evening and there was morning the third day. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate day from night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let, the, let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and a lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let waters teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So I'm going to stop there. Where do you see God's authority in these first 25 verses? How do you see God showing his authority? He's just saying stuff and it's happening. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I mean, how powerful is that to just say hey, this is going to happen, and then it happens. Um, man, it's pretty, that's pretty nuts to just think that. I mean, you think about, like, the sky. It's right there to say, like, let there be sky. Bam, and it's just there. That's a lot of power. Um, so that you see that. Anything else do you guys see? God's authority displayed in these first I mean I noticed that he has a lot of authority <laughs> yeah but I mean talking about like how you're mentioning this guy I just always get so like perplexed by the wording of it because it talks about like the water underneath it and then the water above it and then sky being there and so I always in my mind pictured like ocean sky I think what he's trying to do from like a primitive standpoint is explain why there's rain because he didn't quite understand at that point that like water evaporates into the clouds and then they come out of the clouds and then they like they didn't they didn't have meteorology at that point that so <laughs> so And that's something that if we had more time to like get into like if we were doing just a study of Genesis, I would talk a lot about like an ancient point of view. And that's the thing like 
I think we come to this passage with 21st century like scientific method and like we want this book to answer our questions about like how did this happen and those were not their questions I mean something that we talked about a lot last over over the summer is like the Bible has to mean to us has to we have to understand what the Bible meant to them first the original audience before we can draw conclusions about what it should mean for us and so really like if you go through the order of this this is the same kind of like you notice like there's a lot of like repeats there's like is it and god said and there was evening and morning and so like there's like these and it's really like a it's like poetry it's like it's like it's like song lyrics it's like there's a refrain and the structure of this so archaeologists have looked at like studied like how this is structured and stuff and it's basically this is the same kind of structure as if like a king was being installed in their kingdom. It's the same kind of language. And so in a way you can look at God is the king in the world in the universe is his kingdom and creation is God's throne room. So all of creation is God's throne room. So it's just this huge, you know, thing that's, and so, um, it's so, almost like in Game of Thrones, every time they introduce Daenerys, they like list all of her, like all of her titles behind what she's done, and it kind of seems like that, where like created light and darkness, separated the ocean from the sky, like breaker of chains and yeah yeah very very similar so let's think about for a minute if moses is the one who's compiling this and putting it together what is the situation that he just come out of with the israelites like what was their life what was happening in their lives what was their status their situation What were the Israelites doing in Egypt? Building pyramids. Why? They were enslaved. Because they were slaves. For 400 years. And in ancient Egypt, they worship a lot of the things that were just mentioned in this creation story. They worship the sun. They worship... And what's the first... One of the very first things that God creates in the creation narrative, you have the sun. I, I, I guess it, it gets, it's later on, but the first thing is let there be light is like the very first thing. And so Moses is making a statement like, don't worship the sun, worship the one who made the sun. The one who made the sun obviously has more power than the sun that you worship. So keep that in mind, because that's one of the big, that's one of the main points that Moses is trying to make. Um, and the way that he wrote this is like, don't worship this stuff, because God made it. Don't worship the creation, worship the creator. Um, so I wonder if I could get a couple of you guys. Um, Deuteronomy 10, 14, Psalm 24, 1, and Job 41, 11. Can I get couple people to read those 10 14 you got that one right Reagan? 
who? Psalm 24, 1 and Job 41, 11. I have Job. You got Job 41, 11. Anybody got Psalm 24, 1? You got it, Carter? Cool. Okay, if you guys are a little rusty on your Old Testament, that's why that's why we're doing this. Cause it's been a while. what's that? It's been a while. Yeah, uh, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. All of a sudden, the right hall, and he was just right to the neck. <laughs> yeah, we gotta make we're gonna make you work a little bit. Yeah. Um, all right. So Deuteronomy ten fourteen. Uh, Deuteronomy ten fourteen says, "To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything." Can I call him? Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So what's the theme in all three verses? It all belongs to God. It's all his. He's, he's, it's again, it's that authority thing comes back. Um... And so, and then in um, Isaiah 66, 1, it says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool, where is the house you will build for me, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord. So, this is something that is established right from the jump, is that God is really big and really powerful and is making exclusive claims to say like i'm the only one that's really deserves your worship and you know that's one of those things i think when we talk about christianity especially in today's culture it's like well but there's a lot of different religions out there why it seems sort of arrogant that you know you would say that like your god is the god and God is making these claims about himself. Is basically saying, like, don't... You know, there, were, it, there was lots of different belief systems back in um, the ancient world. It's just God saying, like, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I've created all of these things that you worship. And, um, and then he talks about, um, you know, one thing you notice as you go through that Genesis 1... What does God say when he creates something? What does he say about his creation every time? It's good. It's good. And we didn't get the humanity yet, but he says that he continues on in verse 26 that, that he created us and we are good. What's up, Drew? We are talking about the authority of God. Um, Drew, this is Aaron. Aaron, I'm sure. So... Um, Aaron used to go for, to Gray's old church in Kearney a little bit. So Gray was Drew's youth pastor, right? Like, and before he went to Kearney. So, okay. yeah. And here at Olympia South. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So, um, so Moses, we're talking about how Moses was, was probably 
didn't write down every word of the first five books of the Bible, but he's probably collected it and was one of the editors of, of this and talking about, you know, when he's writing Genesis, it's after the fact. They've already, you know, escaped from, from Egypt. And so he's writing this to restore, help them understand who God is and help them understand their identity of who they are. And so, um, so we kind of talking about this, this authority thing. And then you get to Psalm 19. Uh, if you want to, Psalm is the easiest one because if you just flip your Bible in the middle, it's like the biggest Old Testament book. So it's that's one. It's an easy landmark to kind of find. But Psalm 19. I want to read verses one through six. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run its course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. And so it's talking about worship. That the actual, that as God has made this creation, the creation has created good. That when you look out, and this is actually a great spot to do this Bible study tonight. Because we get some of the best sunsets on this side of Lenexa. And you can kind of see, you know, the sky and the pink clouds and you can see a bit of the creation and creation is designed for you to be in awe of it for you, not to like worship it. So that's the mistake that had been made up to this point is that people were looking at the creation and being like, man, that is so beautiful. I'm going to like the Egyptians are worshiping the sun because man, the sun is so bright. It gives warmth and it helps crops grow and all that kind of stuff. And, and essentially God is through this his word is redirecting and saying, well, hold on a minute. No, the beauty of creation is supposed to point people to worship of God that, you know, like I just was in Alaska last week and there was multiple times when I, you know, we rolled up to this huge glacier that was just massive. And I can show you on my phone, like chunks of ice that were like as tall as a person, you know, next to it. And you just feel very small, but you also are like, man, this is just incredible. God's creation is incredible. It's vast. And so let me read you this statement and let me ask you what you think about this. The quote says, he who destroys or degrades the earth spoils its reflection of its maker. Let's say that one more time. He who destroys or degrades the earth spoils its reflection of its maker. And so out of that quote, how could caring for creation be a part of God's mission in the world or doing God's? How is taking care of the world part of God's purposes, do you see? What do you think about that? What do you think about that? When you get to work in God's creation every day, 
I'm going to call you out, Drew, because I bet you have thoughts on this. Yeah, I, I approach it from a little bit different angle. I think it's so important to realize that we are not just in creation, but we are part of it. Yeah. Like, the same atoms that are in us were formed in stars. Like, we just want to think of ourselves as, like, we're just so egocentric. It's like, nah, dude, like, I'm in my environment. I'm like, dude, you are contributing to the composition of your environment. And so if we neglect our surroundings, we indirectly hurt ourselves and each other. Hmm. And so like when God created all of it and said it was good and then created humanity and said it's very good, I'm like, our first mandate is to steward creation. So I think it's like a super cool responsibility to care for every atom in our vicinity. Okay, other thoughts? Reagan's like, huh. Yeah. It's always just so much fun listening to you, though. <laughs> well, didn't we learn a few weeks ago that heaven is really just earth? Yeah. So. <laughs> like, we also. Are we just destroying heaven if we destroy earth? But wasn't there also a conversation about, like. If, wasn't there a conversation though about how right now people are just kind of in like a waiting room and we're waiting for heaven to like come back kind of thing? like is there one right now <laughs> yeah well no there definitely is a heaven right now okay Aaron's like what in the heck kind of church is this what is happening we studied Revelation over the summer and it just got into a lot of like I don't want to say conspiracies but we were all like running all over the place of like what's this <laughs> Well, no, I mean, we, we're going to get to it in a minute, but there's a sense of, like, there's a virus that infected all of this once Adam and Eve, uh, <laughs> worse than Corona. <laughs> um, and there will, you know, heaven is essentially God coming through and giving the antidote to that, which already has come when Jesus died on the cross. That was like the antidote was administered but it's going to like come in its fullness would when jesus comes back so but if you think about like if 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 what we read is true that the universe is god's kingdom and he talks about the earth as his footstool and you just say well i don't really care about like the world around me then you're basically just like kind of taking a dump on like God's throne room. I mean, literally, like you're just kind of being like, yeah, I don't really care about your your throne room, God. You're just, I'm gonna, right? I mean, that's what I read. All, all those passages you guys just read about the earth, everything in the earth is God's, and then it's like, well, let me just mess your stuff up, God, because I don't, I don't really care. Like if somebody came into your classroom, Reagan, yes, that you so painstakingly prepared for your wonderful cherubs that you mean like 15 six-year-olds have already done that place is a mess now <laughs> and how does that feel i mean i guess it's well i expected it to get destroyed like i took pictures of it after it was done because i was like it's never gonna look like this again but still <laughs> but even though you expected it does it is a little bit discouraging yeah because i see crayon marks all over tables and i'm like because <laughs> you like prepared yeah, a place for them I to come learn right weeks and hours many tears 
<laughs> so when Jesus says, I've gone and prepared a place for you. And then we color all over his tables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh my gosh. And so, yeah, I just want to give that perspective. And we got to run quick because we've got stuff to cover. But I want to just, just think through that. Just think through that part of, I think sometimes when we think about mission or missions, it's like we got to go do a VBS or we got to go be on the street and like tell people about heaven. But like Carter's doing God's mission, like taking care of vegetables in the garden. Like that's mission work. Like you're a missionary, Carter. You're, you're, you're tending the the throne room for your job. That's a pretty cool job. Never thought about it like that, did you? I mean, I've, I've thought a lot about like, how incredible that I get to be in God's creation every day. and But not really tending God's throne. Room, you know? and, and, and think about, like, so let me ask you guys this. What is one place that you visited that just made you go like, wow, this is incredible? Like, what's a part of the country that you've been to that you're like, wow, this is this is amazing? I wanted to joke, and they say the New Jerusalem Garden, Garden in Peoria. Yeah, that's not that's that's not go there. <laughs> but I know some of you guys have been to like Colorado and you know different places. Like, what what's a place that you think, man? It might maybe it's Kansas City. I don't know, but what's a place that you go to and you go like, man, this is just like incredible? Oh, dude. Okay, and when I was in my junior year oh going into my senior year of high school that summer I went on a mission trip to Jamaica and the only way I can describe it when we went snorkeling in the Caribbean dude it's just like being in Finding Nemo it was so bright and vivid like we had these crystal clear goggles and you just had the snorkel up so you can just breathe and just keep looking into the water but schools of fish would be right by you and it was just so bright like the coral reefs and like all this stuff and I was like it's just stunning. Like, I watch Animal Planet and stuff like that. You kind of see it on TV. But when you're immersed in it, everywhere you look is that. Or mountains. So, like, for me, it's like the ocean and mountains. They okay. just, like, stun me. Yeah, I do think that, like, one of the most beautiful sights is just seeing, like, the sunset over the ocean. What's a cool place you've been to? Um, so, I mentioned earlier that my sister lives in Germany. Yeah. So, we went over when they actually lived in Italy and we went to Austria and that oh, was wow. there's a highway running through like the mountains and so that was really pretty because it's all snow covered but you stand on a bridge it's like the tallest suspension bridge and I don't know how tall it is but it's like incredible to look at frightening at the same time but yeah that's super cool what'd you call them what's like what's it what's the coolest place you visited Mount Rushmore. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Just the, or, the bigness of it? Yeah. Or just like the... Yeah, and then we were there for 4th of July and the fireworks. We watched the fireworks oh, show yeah. go off behind them. Okay. Okay. Where are you, Carter? Um, Hawksbill Crag in Arkansas. It overlooks and is in the Boston Mountains. You get it during fall, and you get every color under the rainbow, and it is beautiful. 
I would say, I mean, just coming back from Alaska and seeing these huge glaciers, like, that's just really pretty incredible. And even, like, so we got to, um, we were in this this little fishing boat, and he pulled up to a glacier. Like, typically, like, if you're in a tour boat, they won't do this, but he, like, pulled up and let us go on the beach. Like, so we were, like, from here to that wall, away from it. And there's, like, they're melting, right? So there's these huge, like, pieces of ice, like, falling out of it that would, like, kill you if they landed on you. Like, they're, like, 40-pound you know, blocks of ice just falling off this thing. But just this massive, you know, thing. And you're just like, my gosh, this is just incredible. So I, that, for me, was pretty pretty amazing. And then we got a chance the last night we were there... Um, it was like a surprise. We got to fly in this little four-seat Cessna prop float plane through the mountains, and you could see like the sheep running on the mountains and stuff. It was really cool. Like we were like a hundred yards from the side of this, from the side of the mountain, like flying through. It was it was pretty 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 wild at sunset too. So it's just it was like wow. <laughs> it's pretty cool. I'm gonna talk about Alaska after the end of this uh, this Bible study too. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what does he do? Like, they sing. Something like that. Yeah. All right, so back to Genesis 1. Going back to Genesis 1. Um, continuing on in verse 26. Um, God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. Over the livestock and the wild, all the wild animals, and move all and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image, in the image of God He created them, male and female He created them. And God, God blessed them and said to them, "Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground." And God said, "I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it." They will be yours for food. And to the beasts of the field, earth and the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath and life in it, I give green plants for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. And then I'm going to skip to 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden, the garden of Eden to work, and work it and care for it. And the Lord, command, Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Remember the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. 
But, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the Lord God made a woman out of the rib, and he taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of a man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. But I want to go back to verse 15. It says, God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to work it and care, take care of it. So how would you how do you see we talked about God's authority is laid out all in 1 through 25. But how do you see humanity's authority playing out in these verses that I just read. So the term we use at work is stewardship. And I think that's really apt for humanity's role. We're not, we can't create like God can. We do our best to emulate, but the best we can do is is maintain what's already been put in, into motion. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the role of a steward. If you think back to more medieval times, a steward was one who would take care of the, the homestead while the ruler was on campaign or, or doing something ambassadorial. So that's sort of our role is to maintain yeah yeah and there's also something that's a little more subtle is the whole naming thing because basically you have adam and eve like establishing the identity of these animals there's so there's authority there too that god doesn't god could have been like giraffe lion zebra but he's like no i'm gonna give that job i'm gonna delegate that job to humanity to do that and so you see god's authority being like passed down through as well so god calls humanity good he calls him calls humanity very good and i want and so there is there is sort of like as as drew said we are a part of creation but there is something there does appear to be sort of a special place that god has for humanity and how humanity is treated and how humanity treats each other. And I want to read a couple passages in Proverbs for you guys. I'm going to read Proverbs 14.31 and um, Proverbs 17.5. So Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. And then later on in Proverbs 17.5, it says... Whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. So, what do you think about those verses? And he says, Whoever mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. What do you think about that verse? Or maybe how does that show you what God thinks about people? 
guys think? You said earlier that we're not out sitting outside of creation. We are part of creation. And it's just like not denigrating creation, mocking the poor is denigrating creation. Yeah. So how could caring for the poor be an act of worship? Contents we think about worship being like we come into a sanctuary on a Sunday morning and we sing songs or whatever, but how could actually like serving the poor be an act of worship to God? This is like, I don't want to say this, it's so easy to say something like this, kind of objectify the poor as if they're just like a mechanism for our like holiness or something but people who are poor are vulnerable and so people who are vulnerable you can do the greatest good with or the greatest evil yeah and so i think that extreme duality with opportunities is like who you really are is like magnified in the way we treat the poor and like those who are sick who are dying young people like anyone who's like vulnerable That's a different, that's kind of a weird approach. No, but I think also, I would just add on to that. I think the same goes for like the immigrant or the refugee or anybody that you encounter is God's creation. And so like treating people well is honoring God's creation. So like if I'm just a punk to Colin, like all the time. <laughs> wow, this is a jerk. Gets me off the hook for a lot of crappy things, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You're like, if I'm just a jerk to people, meanwhile, like, you told me to get out of here so many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, just I think treating people with humanity is like probably one of the biggest ways you can honor God. I mean, I think sometimes we talk about like, oh, you know, we get so caught up in like defending God, I think, you know, in our culture. Like we got to stand up for this because it's like, well, I don't think I think Jesus can defend himself. I want to like love people in a way that says like there's something different about that and that brings glory to God I think there's something beautiful about that in kind of one of the other pieces um, Genesis is Genesis 2 2 there's something huge that happens Drew can you read that for me Genesis uh, chapter 2 verse 2 and on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done can you go do three as well? So God blessed the seventh day and allowed it because on it, no, and hallowed it, making it holy. Because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. It's kind of repetitive. But think about the audience. We talked about it earlier. Who are the first people that are hearing this story? 
And their circumstance that they've just come out of is? Slavery. And how many days off do you get when you're a slave? Zero. So all they have known for 400 years, so 400 years ago was 1621, right? So think about everyone you've ever known that we've, our culture's ever known for the last 400 years. We, all we have seen ourselves is as a piece of equipment, a piece of machinery. We, our only purpose is to make bricks for these stupid pyramids and to do labor. And that's literally our only, our only purpose. And now Moses is writing in the creation narrative that God rested. And so you get a day of rest now. Every week you get a day of rest. What would that sound like to your ears if you hear this idea? Like you have never even heard of someone having a day off. And now God is basically saying like you get to have a day off every single week. How do you think that would have impacted them? It'll totally change their identity because they would like they saw themselves as like a cog in a machine. Right. Like we're just here to produce bricks. But then it's like, oh no, we're not just here to make stuff. Like we're here to enjoy life and rest. It's a game changer. I mean the idea that God says you are created in the image of God and you are good are two things that they've never heard in their lives. And because you are, because you are, have worth, you get a day of rest. And you can have a day of rest because the one who has ultimate authority is God. And so it's not up to you guys to keep the world spinning. Like the world will keep spinning without your help. So you can rest. And this is a major theme of the Bible is just the idea that like God's got this. It's not all on your shoulders. And so, um, so this is just huge. I mean, it's, there's a shift away from like, don't worship the creation, worship the creator, but then also that you all have inherent worth, inherent value, and that, we should pass that on to each other. And it's a revolutionary idea, which makes Genesis three really tragic. Cause you have this create, you know, you have this situation where you've got creation and everything's good. And there's, you know, there's, there's also significance. We're not, we don't have a ton of time to get into it tonight, but the significance, you know, the, the word helper is actually not very helpful in, in the way that Eve's described with Adam. Um, our English translation doesn't really do it justice because the, there is a significance um, of Eve being taken out of the side of Adam. And the idea is that they walk side by side as co-rulers together and actually, well, we're going to see in a minute how that gets distorted. So now you get into three. And so now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. Before I go any farther, 
Why do you think it's a serpent? Again, think of the audience. Who, where, who are the people that are hearing this? Where do they just come from? And what do you know about the imagery in Egypt? What, do you, what, what are there a lot of in Egypt? Snakes. Well, there's pyramids, right? But if you think of like the headdress of a lot of the pharaohs, it has a cobra on the top of it, right? Like that was snakes were like really important. It's it's their deity. It's why it's why um, Moses can throw down a staff and it turns into a snake, and then he can grab it again and turns into a staff. Again, that's like the authority of like don't worship this snake thing. This is. This Moses has authority over that snake. So I'm going to make the statement that I don't think Moses is trying to let us know that a huge snake came up and started talking to Adam and Eve and they just thought it was fine. Like, oh, hi, Mr. Snake. But just that this deceiver has the characteristics of a snake. This kind of slimy, deceitful, no good And so now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? By the way, is that what God said? So what's the strategy? What's the strategy that Satan uses in this, in this, in this story? He's gaslighting her. Can you talk more about that? (laughs) I mean, there's just some manipulation of So he's basically inserting a question into something that there shouldn't be a question about. Like, God was very clear about what they're supposed to do and not do, and he, like, muddies the waters. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. If you, you must not touch it, or you will surely die, or you will die. You will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, what's that strategy? What's the temptation in verse 5? It's authority, right? I want you to have, God's already given them authority being co-rulers and having all this stuff. But no, I want, like there's a temptation to have more. And if you look at history, that is always a temptation for people, right? It's like, I, I like power, but if I can get more, I'll take it. And so this is this vulnerable piece. And so when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of and ate it and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. The eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you you eaten from that tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you you put here with me, she gave me some from the tree, and I ate it. Now, 
Okay, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate it. So, a couple things. Um, so he's tempting them with power. What's the relationship between Adam and Eve before... Well, that's, what's the relationship with Adam and Eve and God before this whole situation happens? What's their relationship like, as far as you can tell? Yeah, I mean, God's like... The Lord God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, God's just like hanging out with them, right? What's Adam and Eve's relationship once they eat the fruit? With her and God or her and Adam? The, both of them, Adam and Eve with God. What's the first thing that they do when they eat the fruit? They hide. This whole idea of shame is now in the picture. They've never experienced shame in their lives, and now there's shame. Which, that should be a clue to you. If you ever feel ashamed about something, you can feel guilty, like, oh, man, I really shouldn't have done that. But when you start feeling shame, that is not ever from the Lord. That is a result of the fall. That is something that, you know, the enemy wants to rub your nose in something. And so, um, can I say like a quick yeah. interpretation of this? Yeah. So whenever we see like them talk about being naked and stuff, we immediately think that they're ashamed of like having their genitals revealed. But I heard this one interpretation that said they weren't ashamed of like being naked around each other. They were ashamed of the fact that they had genitals because it was a reminder of their biology. And in their attempt to be like God, they hated that they were restricted to their human form. And every time they looked at like the fullness of themselves, they were like. Gosh, dang it. And so they tried to cover up themselves as a way of being like, I don't want to think about my finitude, my moral, my mortality. I wish I was like God. I think it's also, I think that that's definitely a big part of it. I also think it's just a matter of like, there's like this, I'm now vul- I'm vulnerable. And, you know, think about like, when are you in your most vulnerable point? When you get out of the shower before you put clothes on, that's like your multiple. Somebody broke into your house at that point. That would be the worst, you right? You got zero armor, dude. Yeah. Like, armor <laughs> score is zero. Like I said, I think it's more uncomfortable for the other person. <laughs> <laughs> Fight them and they can't get you. Like, big power move is that if you don't back down, you full force fight them. <laughs> Okay, we're taking that into account. It's, you're very vulnerable. <laughs> you're, and so I, I think that's part of it is just like, oh, I got to like protect myself. I got to put up, I got to hide because I don't want people to see. And there was no self-consciousness. There was no anxiety about themselves at all up until that point. Um, which goes into all that you were saying. I think it's, just, it's another dimension of that. But then you see the consequences and this is where, when you, we talk about, like, Revelation being, like, the renovation, it's because, we, well, I, and we talked about it, too, like, the relationship between each other. I mean, you have so much, like, blame, like, well, it's his fault. It's her fault. It's the devil's fault. It's, there's no, like, accountability. There's none, none of that. And so, because you've done this, cursed are you above the, all livestock 
and all the wild animals. You'll crawl on your belly. It says this to the, to, to, to the serpent first. You'll crawl on your belly. you eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Sorry, guys. Could have been avoided. Um, your desire will be... Now, here's something that is often overlooked. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. When you have men that say, like, well, the Bible says that I'm in charge, and you submit to me, woman. Like, that's a result of the fall. That's not how it was meant to be. They were side by side. This whole idea of, like, a dominance is in the 16th verse of Genesis 3. Um, because you listened to... And then to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Curse is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat from it. All the days of your life will produce thorns and thistles for you. You'll eat the plants of the field. And he talks about... Like they can't, you get their barred from the garden, they're barred from the tree of life. So there's, it's, it's a, it's not just a consequence between them. It's, it, there's a, there's a, this virus that goes into all creation. And just for the sake of time, there's consequences. Sin enters the world, and in the next chapter, you have the first murder. And then in the next few verses after that, you have the first revenge. Or the first fear of vengeance. And it 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 kind of spirals, spirals out of control until you get to this flood. And you get to Genesis 6. Genesis 6, 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, that every inclination of the thoughts of the human, race, human heart was only evil all the time. Let me read that again. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and, and that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. So literally all people ever thought about was doing harm to one another. And we just talked about earlier that when we, when we mistreat each other, that is, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's, abusing God's creation. It's, a, it's abusing, you know, this thing that God has, has put together. God has said is good. And so God takes a dramatic move. We're going we're gonna to buzz through this really quick before, so we can get, uh, we can, I want to wrap up by nine tonight. But you have a global flood that happens, which is, Pretty big, right? Pretty dramatic. Pretty drastic. I don't know what the population of the earth is, but essentially the entire population of the earth, with the exception of Noah and his family, is wiped out. What do you guys think about that? When you see, like, God sends a flood and wipes out most of humanity, what do you think about that? I think it does not belong in child books like children's books that's one of those stories that we talk about all the time but it's super dark and we're like telling a bunch of little kids about it or painted on like nursery walls yeah <laughs> like the Noah's Ark with all the animals yeah. Noah's Ark was the theme of my brother's room like we were growing up my mom made our room 
So his was Noah's Ark and mine was um, Sermon on the Mount, like the five boys and or not Sermon on the Mount, but like the yeah, like the five boys and <laughs> So why do you th- why do you think that Noah's Ark was there? Why do you think your your parents chose that? They wanted to traumatize your brother. <laughs> yeah, actually, that's exactly what my mom said. No, I don't. I mean, the what I think about is what we talked about in Revelation of like you don't want to be left, <laughs> like you want to be, and so. They chose it because there is the destruction, and then afterward, there is the rainbow that comes in, saying, like, I will not do this again. And so there's that hope What would have happened to humanity if there wouldn't have been a flood, do you think? Every person on earth is, every inclination of their heart is only evil all the time. If that's just let, left to just go without any stopping. What does the world look like if that just just is allowed to just go? It would just leave the room. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's essentially like we talk about a virus. I mean, think about like, this is going to be gross for a, section, a second, but... Like, somebody who gets, like, a, a really bad infection in, like, their foot. To the point where there's, like, gangrene and you have to... When it gets to a certain point, what do you have to do to the foot? You gotta amputate it. Because why? What will happen if you don't? Because it'll spread to the rest of your body and eventually kill you. And so this is God's creation. I mean, this is God's... God's heartbeat is for... You know, the redemption of all things and what we know happens at the end of the Bible. And, like, that's that's in jeopardy. In Genesis 6, like, we guys, we only made it six chapters in the Bible. And the entire story, this whole thing is in jeopardy in five chapters. Really in, like, three chapters. Because it's, this is just, like, it keeps rolling down the hill after Genesis 3. It's just like, oh. So there's this kind of extreme measure because it's really the salvation of like people is at stake. And then you get to Genesis 11 and, you know, the Tower of Babel, the way I heard it when I was growing up as a kid was always like, well, you know, they had this tower and it was going to be a tower to heaven. And they had to, God had to like, Confused them because God was threatened by them building this tower to heaven. Well, that's kind of ridiculous, right? I mean, we just read like 10 chapters before this that God created the heavens and the earth with a word. Why, why would that God be scared of people building a tower? Right? Like that's not like this whole part. This, this is like one of the most misinterpreted, um, This is one of the most misinterpreted verses in the entire scripture. Genesis eleven six. The Lord said, "Is if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So people read that and they go like, it sounds like God's scared. But it's not that God's scared. 
Because what... Some of you guys have had me in Sunday school in the past. What are they actually building? Led Zeppelin wrote a song about this once. They are building a tower that they are hoping will go so high that they can just crawl right on up to heaven. Sort of. The opposite of that. To go to hell. <laughs> <laughs> No, they're bringing, they're building stairs so God can get to them. Because what that structure is that they're building is called a ziggurat. It was like, there's an ancient, and you can find ruins of this, but it goes like this. It looks like a big staircase. And essentially what they're saying is that God needs us to build a set of stairs for him so that he can have a relationship with us. God needs... And, and the, the part of this, that sentence that should really stick out to you is the, the sentence that says, God needs us. God needs me. And if I don't do this, then God can't come into. And so, again, what happens if that idea goes without being checked? This idea that, Colin, did you know that God needs you? God needs you to build up some stairs. You better go get, get cracking. Okay. Like, what happens if that idea just gets to just go without any, without stopping? People's perspective of God, it's, it's like distorted forever. Like, how do you know who God is if it's just, so that's why Genesis 12 exists. That's, because Genesis 12, right after there's this whole, like, I mean, guys, five more chapters and the whole story is in jeopardy again. <laughs> like, like, you know, you've had Genesis 6. It's like people are doing only evil all the time. Okay, we had a flood. Okay. Whoosh. All right. We're good, right? Five chapters later. No, God needs stairs. And if God doesn't have stairs and he can't really connect to his people, it's like God's like, no, <laughs> people. And so he says to Abram, go from your country and your people and your father's household to land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all people on earth will be blessed through you. And the idea behind this passage is this is maybe one of the most important passages in the entire scripture until we get to the New Testament. Because it's this idea that God knows that people need relationship. Like we're, we're, we're a long way from the Garden of Eden where God is hanging out with Adam and Eve, walking in the cool of the day. And God's like, people need to know who I am, but I seem too distant from them. So I'm going to work through Abraham and his descendants and that through the way that they live their lives... I'm going to, people are going to know me again. And so that's the idea of the entire rest of the, of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. That what is supposed to happen is people live this life where they are caring for creation and caring for one another and, you know, giving glory to God. And that, that will be so inspiring for the rest of humanity that people will come and the, the world will come into relationship with God. But as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, it doesn't quite 
work out that way. Not because God does anything wrong, but because but because people don't always live up to that. Now, you could say like, man, God kind of is, this is not a very efficient way to do things, God. Like you made a creation and then we screwed it up in two chapters. And then you may, he had to send a flood and then he had to confuse the languages. Like, God, what in the world? But this is the story, part of the big part of the story of scripture is God gives you freedom. You have freedom to follow God and you get freedom to not follow God. And um, it's kind of the beauty and tragedy together of the Bible is that um, God gives us, I mean, the fact that God gives us this opportunity to represent him and to be these people is like really amazing that the God of the universe would say, Colin, I've got some really important stuff for you to do. I'm going to put this in your hands. Like, that's pretty big, right? Like, they didn't give you the keys to lock up at Ace Hardware yet? (laughs) (laughs) But God's saying, I'm going to put, like, salvation of humanity. Like, I'm going to give you the responsibility to tell the world about me. This is pretty huge. So as we get into the next um, few weeks of this, um, God wants desires to work through his people. And you see the culmination of that. That's why when we get to Revelation 7, 9, and it's every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around God's throne, it's like, and this is going to succeed. This, it, there's a lot of times when it looks like it's not going very well in the Bible, but it's this, this idea is going to be successful, that there are going to be people from around the world throughout history that are going to come and, and worship God together. It's just a beautiful thing. Okay, I talked a lot tonight. Sorry, guys, but this was the laying the foundation of um, the Bible.